Good morning, afternoon and evening fellow listeners and welcome to episode four of the XSENS.cast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Conrath. Our podcast is here to shine the spotlight on some of the world's trailblazers, including scientists, practitioners, researchers, inventors and entrepreneurs. This podcast acts as a means of disseminating information and inspire current and future generations. The XSENS.cast will discuss important topics across domains of technology, biomechanics and medical breakthroughs, to name a few, as well as other disruptive technologies. Whether you're a new listener or a loyal audience member, we welcome you. On today's episode, we have two very talented individuals that do some amazing work behind the curtains of XSENS within the technology team. First off the bat, we have Dr. Frank Wouter. Uh, Frank has a bachelor's master's degree in mechanical engineering from University of Twente, followed by a PhD in using minimal sensor set for full body motion capture, which set the path to work on motion capture algorithms at XSENS as a research engineer. Second up, we have Dr. I Dr. Ibrahim Bilal. Ibrahim is an electrical engineer at heart who received his master's degree from KTH Sweden and his PhD from University of Twente in the Netherlands, both in the field of wireless communication. With experience in cellular industry and research, he has developed a strong background in signal processing, sensor networks, and estimation theory. Since the past two and a half years, he has been working in XSENS as a senior research engineer, where he's leading the motion technology team. Welcome to the show, lads. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you both. Um, let me just begin. I guess one of the first uh, questions I wanted to ask you both is, is you've both done postgraduate studies within the University of Twente. Um, very strong technical university. I'm just curious, um, did you, who were your supervisors? Did you guys uh, actually cross paths at the university before you actually came together at XSENS? Uh, for, for me, uh, I studied under Peter Felting in the Biomedical Signals and Systems Group, which is in the, the, the far east of the university, basically. And uh, well, you tell uh, yeah i did my phd in uh, radio science and electrical engineering group and it's uh, completely different than uh, sort of different than what they are doing uh, we never crossed paths um, my professor was mark bentham who was uh, in radio astronomy uh, and i think he's also now head of astron which is the dutch uh, astronomy association very nice um ibrahim throughout your phd you done a lot of work in signal processing, sensor networks and estimation theory. Yeah. Uh, was that always centered around motion applications and, and did you do a specific application for your actual PhD? Um, in my PhD, I worked specifically on uh, communication between different sensors. So that was the kind of essence of, of, uh, of, of my research that in Internet of Things, uh, which is a very challenging topic. Um, uh, how to make sure that we can come up with um, a power inefficient, uh, sorry, power efficient communication source uh, or power efficient communication technology that is able to uh, deliver the messages across in a in a huge network of sensors uh, across any monitoring application. So it was not really related to um, motion sensing or sensors in a, in a in a dynamic environment, but mostly in static environment. But they were they do include challenging radio uh, uh, environments. Okay, interesting. Um, we see the term sensor fusion thrown around a lot in inertial sensor technology. Um, could you give a brief description to our listeners that might not be familiar with this term? What does that mean specifically when we see sensor fusion? 
Yeah, um, I could give this an example uh, if that that works. So let's talk about autonomous driving. So if you have a car and you want this to follow a lane, uh, you can use GPS, um, but the lanes are like 2.5 meters or something, and GPS can give you accuracy of one to five meter. So you need something else, so not only GPS. Uh, so you say, oh, let's say also I use my camera and I can also track my lanes. And then you say, yeah, cameras work, but they need light. All right. So what should I use else? So how about lidars? So we should use lidars. But then you say lidars work, but that work only on on uh, on very specific uh, uh, on on certain uh, objects. Uh, so for example, if you have very shiny objects, they don't work very well. How about I also use ultrasound? But I also want my update rate to be very, very high because the GPS is like 250 milliseconds. I get one update and I want to make decisions within milliseconds. So I also want to use IMU. Now, the question is how to combine all of these sensor technologies and concord sort of a solution that that gives you what you want, that makes you be able to stay within this lane. So sensor fusion is in essence is the combination of multiple sensors in such a way that you uh, gain from their strengths and uh, then you compensate for their weaknesses. The math behind is, is sort of intuitive, if not easy, but it gets complicated when you ask yourself, whatever the solution I have, is this optimal or not? That's the part that, where it gets really challenging. Okay, fantastic. And when it comes to, say, an inertial sensor, so we're combining signals from an accelerometer, a gyroscope, and a magnetometer, um, what are the, some of the challenges you see in, in these particular processes for, for state estimation of motion? Yeah, so as I said, and in the particular example as well, so each sensor has its own limitations. Uh, so if you use, rely too much on IMU for too long, uh, you will have certain drift. But if you rely too much on, on GPS, then your accuracy is not enough. Now, how to combine them together? But the, the question again here is, Whatever solution I'm coming up with is this optimal, and that's the part. If you if you go deep enough, that's 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 the part where it gets really really complicated and really sure. challenging. Absolutely. So it's good to have uh, brilliant minds like yourself working on these solutions. Um, I'm going to come over to you for a sec, Frank. Um, so Frank, much of your work has involved um, using a minimal number of sensors to track human motion. Uh, in fact, if you actually your name pops up quite a lot in the literature. Um, when we search for things like this. Um, tell us a little bit more about just in general in, in your work in this area. Yeah, so uh, typically what you uh, you want to get the best information possible if you're doing measurements on the human body. Uh, but in a lot of cases, uh, you're only interested in a particular uh, part of the, the motion. It might be that you just want very accurate uh, knee angles uh, for some uh, gait assessment, for example. But uh, you, in that case, you might want to rethink your sensor setup because also uh, time is money in a lot of cases. So if you have a lot of sensors to set up, that also takes time. And if you look at uh, especially healthcare, there, there's just not the time to set up a, a full body uh, motion capture system to to assess where whether someone is improving or not. So and on the other hand, a lot of human motion is sort of predictable. And uh, as our joints have uh, limitations in how they mo can move, 
for example, if you look again at the knee, it's mostly flexion extension. That's uh, the principal direction of movement. And in the other directions, there's very little. So, uh, and that there's limitations to all joints in the body. So if we use that information uh, in combination with uh, sensor technology, we can uh, get away with using less information to still get a, a reasonable, accurate outcome. And especially if you uh, use contextual information, like what is the, the person uh, performing in that case, or uh, uh, yeah, mostly that. Absolutely. So adding sort of biomechanical constraints to the models and things like that. Okay, fantastic. And um, you did a lot of your data collection throughout your PhD that was done at University of Twente? Yeah, more, well, uh, some of it was University of Twente. Uh, some of it was in a, a biomechanics lab of uh, Rusing Research and Development, which is a rehabilitation center that also has a re research department. In, in which they have a very nice uh, setup to do both optical and inertial motion capture, but also uh, force plates and instrumented treadmills. So all the the equipment needed to get uh, a good picture of the whole um, biomechanics, both kinematics and kinetics at the same time uh, from uh, a single subject. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and have you focused on full body pose estimates or has it just been lower body? It's uh, been a bit of both, actually. Uh, the most interesting one to to have is like a, a one fits all uh, solution, right? So you want to uh, get whatever application to work with a minimal sensor set. So in that case, you would want to get a full body uh, uh, estimation with just a small sensor set. So uh, in, in those works, I mainly looked at a, a very wide range of movements from uh, ADL tasks to sports to uh, regular gates, but also um, some more specific tasks uh, like uh, certain reaching tasks, etc. to construct a database of the, all those movements together, uh, a model that's able to generalize over all those movements and still say something about uh, different people and still work uh, moderately accurate. But yeah, there are limitations because you can imagine you and the type of data you use as input for training also determines your limitations in what you can estimate uh, with good accuracy. Indeed. And if you do uh, uh, lower body, uh, which is a very uh, nice part of the body because, because it's very predictable in a lot of our day-to-day uh, -day tasks. It's very repeatable. So there's a lot of information already just in uh, how we uh, move over time. So you can use uh, the time uh, information here better because it's so predictable. Okay, fantastic. Um, and how many sensors do you feel gives a sort of good estimate compared to a larger number of sensors? And, and sort of at what stage do you feel the quality may start to degrade if you're reducing sensors too much? Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question. Uh, it's not like there's a sweet spot for, Indeed. for every solution, right? So uh, yeah, it all depends on what you want to get out of it. If you want to do uh, a full body analysis, 
then uh, most of my work focuses on a, a set of five sensors, typically placed at uh, pelvis, lower legs and uh, lower arms. So basically what you do there is you leave out one or two segments in between the sensors, so you have no information of those, and you try to estimate the information in between, which is in a lot of cases easier than trying to estimate uh, beyond what you're measuring. So if you like uh, measuring the, the hand orientations or the feet orientations, that's uh, yeah, that's more difficult. The more distal you are, the more freedom the, the segment gets basically. So uh, you want to still make use of the information you have. Okay, well answered. That was uh, that was very good. Um, and much of your work has involved training neural networks. Just for our listeners that may not be sort of familiar with this area, could you give us a little sort of brief description um, on how you can have different types of learning? Um, you've even sort of published papers using deep learning versus shallow learning. Can you give us sort of just elaborate a little bit further on that for our listeners? Yeah, so the, the difference between shallow and deep learning is uh, mostly in uh, the depth of the network. So uh, whereas shallow learning is one or two hidden layers, which also uh, restrains the network to uh, model less complex uh, relations, whereas a, a deep uh, neural net can uh, model the more uh, complex relations. And in a lot of cases, deep learning goes hand in hand with uh, without feature engineering. So you don't need to specify the data that goes in. Uh, in particular, in some cases, it can, of course, help uh, the network to uh, to focus on uh, certain parts of the information it gets. But in a lot of cases, you can uh, get away without doing feature engineering. But on the other hand, if you want to uh, use deep learning, you typically need a ton of data. And sure. yeah, that can be a, a big challenge, especially if you use uh, motion capture data, because, uh, well, if you're inter interested in a very specific uh, use case, then there might not be a ton of data. And then uh, going to deep learning uh, could still be an option, but then you have to make sure that you augment the data you get in a certain way and still take care of uh, making sure that your data set is not biased to some use case yep. over some other. Okay, fantastic. Um, and so with, within, with some of the papers you've written on that specifically, what, have, what did you find in deep learning versus shallow learning? Yeah, uh, most in a lot of cases, if you have a very, um, small part of human motion you want to uh, give an estimate of using a, a small sensor set, then you can most likely get away with just using a small sensor, uh, just a, a, a small network, so a shallow network. Uh, but if you have a lot of data, then uh, going to deep learning can be uh, very beneficial uh, sure. because it saves you time doing the feature engineering, etc. And it, uh, it can be a bit more flexible in, uh, in your outcomes. Yeah, cool. Uh, well answered. Uh, Ibrahim, going to come, come back to you. Yeah. Um, 
you're currently carrying a very strong team uh, leading motion technology, so hats off to you. Um, have you been involved in all of the applications and, and sectors of excellence, so not just, uh, for instance, uh, human motion measurement? Do you focus predominantly on one sector or do you find that you, yourself you're working across uh, multiple applications? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, to say that I am involved in all of the projects, that will be <laughs> an overstatement. I do have an overview of uh, the projects or the, the, the sectors that we are working on, um, uh, but I am predominantly uh, working in um, a bit of sensor fusion, a bit of uh, technologies which require um, uh, signal processing, wireless expertise and wireless communication, um, and, and areas around that, uh, especially also localization, uh, which is also one of the interesting topics that we want to explore. Okay, fantastic. Um, and just going back to sort of you, you mentioned working with a lot of a lot of sensors. Um, when we move to sort of several motion sensors within a wireless network, what, what do you find um, are some of the biggest challenges? Oh, that's a that's a very uh, Interesting question. The, um, there are a lot of challenges in uh, if you talk about Internet of Internet of Things. Uh, now it has moved to Internet of Moving Things. Indeed. Uh, there's a lot <laughs> of challenges. Uh, my professor used to say it's not IoT. IoT does not stand for Internet of Things. It stands for Interference of Things. Uh, <laughs> so there are many challenges. So the three challenges that I can mention is um, one is security. Uh, I, I think it's, it cannot be um, uh, 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 asserted anymore that this, this this is really a threat um, security because all of the, the sensors they are kind of inexpensive and the communication protocols are are um, simplistic in a way that that allows to be power efficient and that does not give you enough margin to focus on the security part. So there was a case somewhere and also in US and somewhere in casino that uh, somebody hacked the whole casino based on a sensor in a fish tank, which was connected to the Wi-Fi. So right now, like all of the sensors are connected um, and some of them have good security, some of them have bad security, but even one sensor technology that has bad security can gain, can give someone access to the whole network. And that's, one, yeah. that's one of the biggest threat that I see in Internet of Things. Second thing that I can imagine uh, as a threat is power um, right now. I'm also unhappy that my watch is, uh, I have to charge my watch every two days. I want my watch to be, yeah, maybe weeks or months, uh, to last for weeks or months on a single uh, charge. And we want sensors on a human body or anywhere that can last for days uh, without recharging. Uh, and right now, this is a big challenge. This is not possible uh, in many applications. So we have to come up as a whole, uh, the, the whole research community, on looking at each aspect of the sensor technology, whether it is communication, whether it is MAC protocol, whether it is uh, the chip design, uh, whether it's the sensor fusion technology, whether it's the embedded programming, each aspect has to be, have to be optimized. And this needs a lot of research and investigation. Um, and the third of all the, the is interference, which I think is one of the big challenges is the problem is that we are relying on one or two technologies as a solution to to solve them all. Uh, Bluetooth is very common these days. Wi-Fi is very common these days. Um, problem is with these technologies, it, they are really good, 
but human body um, is not is a very hostile environment for these kind of uh, uh, wireless communication protocols. Um, and moving forward, it's not going to be one or two communication technology that will dominate. I think there will be multiple communication technology that will have to go hand in hand, uh, just like sensor fusion, as I mentioned, that they can you can use the strengths of some of the technologies and uh, compensate for the weakness of the others, such that you come up with a solution that is not only secure, it's also interference robust, um, but it's also power efficient. Absolutely, I think that's good. And um, I suppose sort of just, I guess, communication speeds and that as well. What sort of exactly. comment do you have with respect to how far is sort of 5G away from being everywhere? I mean, you, you hear some reasons it's, uh, you know, it's it's in a lot of our phones, for instance, but it also relies on what sort of satellites have been set up, uh, antennas have been set up. Um, how far away do you think we are from having sort of 5G in everything? Yeah, that's, uh, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, 5G in everything is, is a big question. Right now, the, the research trend is going towards 6G. And uh, 6G is also very interesting where communication is is merged with sensing. So how, if you look back 20 years ago, it was first it was was about calls and, and SMSs and then it went from sending pictures and then now it's streaming uh, video calls, uh, voice calls. So it's more data and moving forward, they think that they've solved the problem of data and now uh, they can do more. And that is to combine communication with sensing. So not only send data and 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 okay. uh, and, and for, use it for connecting uh, nodes, but also to sense what is happening in the environment. So to come back to your question on 5G, I, I'm not sure how far we are, um, but there are recent um, interesting development in and not only in lab but also outside the labs as well, like uh, within cities, within a couple of cities where you could. Uh, use uh, real-time data streaming through your Oculus Rift, for example, uh, and go from uh, from one city to another city. You can communicate within millisecond or make a decision within milliseconds. Incredible. So uh, yeah, it's quite. And so when we jump from these, you know, three G to four G to five G, is it quite a linear jump, or are we talking several orders of magnitude every time we we increase? Uh, a G, if you would. <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if I look back, I mean, uh, each uh, G has had a quite incredible jump uh, mm -hmm. from 3G to 4G. It's it moved from from really, I mean, uh, uh, the data was expanded quite a lot. And with 5G, it's the speed is um, I see there's a comp there could be a competition between 5G and Wi-Fi. Um, so 5G is, is, is able to deliver bandwidths so high if if their infrastructure is there. The problem is that infrastructure is expensive and you have to deploy them everywhere um, uh, in small, small areas because they rely on high frequencies as well as low frequencies. So previously in 2G and 3G, low frequencies were used, but in 5G, the high frequencies are used because they allow for more bandwidth. More bandwidth means more data. Uh, but the problem with high frequencies is they can only cater for a small vicinity. So you need yeah. to have a lot of those in cities. But the question is, would you also scatter them around your highways to have to support your your uh, autonomous drivings? 
So mm -hmm. there's a big investment in this, and um, yeah, I'm not sure what will happen. Uh, yeah, but yeah. it's an interesting point you make because there's sort of ecological considerations as well. You know, like if we if we need to have these at certain distance, it's like architecturally, do do we want that? Is that going to disturb uh, nature, etc.? So there's almost ecological questions that come with that as well, isn't there? Exactly, exactly, and the yeah. power consumption as well. I mean, I I was. If you think about yourself, I mean, 10 years ago, I did an exercise with myself that to see how many sensors are serving me at a particular moment. And I thought, oh, I might have a phone which has five to 10 sensors. I have a car and I have a watch, not not, not watch at that point or, or, or a TV. And in total, I have like 10 to 15 sensors that are serving me at a particular moment. And now if I think about it, I have more than 20 sensors uh, that are serving me uh, at a particular moment all the time. And if you combine and if you think of outside it, there are a lot of other sensors that are serving you, but you don't know that. And it's soon we the, the prediction is that it could go to thousand sensors per person. And that implies that um, if you do an exercise on how much power is needed, it 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 would require, I don't know, 20 to 40 nuclear reactors to 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 power up all these Internet of Things technologies. So yeah. that's not gonna happen. So we have to we have to think about it. How do we want to make them power efficient? Absolutely. Good, good call. Um, Frank, as uh, you've just described to us in a very good way, um, you've used neural networks to reconstruct motion from minimal sensor sets. Um, have you done anything similar to estimate um, kinetics? And maybe I should take a step back just for our listeners as well, perhaps explain the difference between kinetics and kinematics. Yeah, so basically, uh, kinetics are the derivative of kinematics because without uh, driving motion, uh, there is no motion. So kinetics is basically all the forces and moments that act on the body and within the body. So that every time you uh, take a step, you push off on the ground, but that push off also impacts uh, the load in the knee, in your back, etc. The way you move impacts how uh, how your body is experiencing that and it can have uh, injury uh, uh, as a consequence, whereas kinematics is really the the movement of the body itself. So uh, how your knee moves, how your ankle moves, etc. So uh, to come back to your question, if I also did something with kinetics, uh, yes, uh, I have uh, done some work on estimating running kinetics. So every time you run, you push off on the ground with a lot more force than you do when you're just walking around. So that has a lot of implications on stress on the body. And uh, the goal of that work was to try and estimate uh, the ground reaction forces, so the force you use to propel yourself, uh, just using uh, IMUs. So in that work, I had IMUs placed on the lower legs and one on the pelvis to estimate first the kinematics uh, of the whole uh, lower body. So uh, all the joint angles of the ankle, the knee and the hip. And together with uh, the accelerations and the joint angles estimate what forces were acting on the feet. Uh, and especially IMUs have the are in essence a force measure because they measure uh, force is equal to ma mass times acceleration. So that's Newton. Uh, and 
what we typically use of an accelerometer is only the acceleration directly, but what's more interesting is the forces behind that, right? So, uh, and that work was pretty successful because you're already close to measuring the forces directly and we're able to get uh, very high accuracy within subjects, uh, a little bit less between subjects, but especially in running, that's because there's a lot of difference how forces act on the body uh, by the way you run. There are people mm -hmm. that run on their forefoot, there are people that run on midfoot and heels, and that completely changes the impact you experience during every step. So uh, yeah, there, there are challenges there, but uh, overall uh, the work was pretty, uh, was able to generalize over most subjects pretty good, so. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and another, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to give you these cutoff questions, but I mean, how many sensors do you feel are needed to estimate it well? But I might even rephrase that. I mean, let's just say, uh, do you need upper body sensors to accurately do it? Um, or can you get away with just lower body sensors? Uh, yeah, that's again, very application specific. Uh, sure. The, the main challenge in estimating kinetics is understanding uh, where the the forces act on the body. So if you look at running, that's that's very well, that's moderately easy because there's only one foot on the ground at each time. So you know there there could only be a force on that one foot that's on the ground. Whereas if you're walking, uh, you're half the time more or less uh, on the ground with both feet. And then how do you determine how much force is on one foot and on the other? Yeah, and, indeed. and that's a very big challenge uh, to solve in for all applications, right? For for walking, it's you can model this as some kind of uh, a curve to differentiate between the context of left and right. But for if you're doing ADL tasks, so you're trying to uh, set your cup of coffee so you walk to the kitchen make some turns uh, walk mm -hmm. back cup of coffee and all those turns uh, impacts differently how the forces are uh, distributed over the feet so th those are very challenging uh, tasks to solve and yeah there's a lot of research going on in that direction whereas most research first focused on on gait because it's the more easy one to solve Sure, sure. You know more about the movement, so you can actually apply particular constraints and assumptions yes. um, within that. Whereas, as you said, once it's very, um, not, I'm not going to use the word chaotic, but when you when you sort of don't incorporating that into activities of daily living where it's unpredictable, yeah, it, it becomes a bit more uh, difficult. Um, so I'm going to throw this question um, at the both of you. I mean, feel free to both answer or just one. Um, Given the large amounts of data we collect with devices and with respect to machine learning, um, with respect to machine learning and the time needed to train neural networks, what are the sort of limitations of most of today's accessible hardware? And so, for instance, when is a, a supercomputer needed, for instance, um, to, to do a lot of your, uh, your deep learning? Well, I think I'll go first and then uh, Ibrahim can complement my answer. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, for one, storage is a challenge. Uh, we now have 
data centers as big as football stadiums and just to store our data in the cloud, but that's for any type of data, right? Uh, but yeah, those, and also coming back to power, and those are highly uh, power consuming <laughs> and uh, create a lot of heat, which fortunately we start to reuse again in uh, heating houses. Uh, so that's a good thing okay. about that. I'm digressing a little bit here. Um, <laughs> That's fine, nothing digressing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the storage, uh, we try to save more and more uh, data just because we get more and more uh, capabilities to store things. And yeah, there, there needs to be a balance uh, to store the things that are actually uh, required and not just everything we want. And then there is, uh, the training itself, which requires uh, a lot of computing. Uh, luckily, uh, with the recent advancements in video cards, although they are very hard to come by uh, nowadays, but they are out there and they're very good in doing a lot of parallel uh, things. So they have a lot of uh, small uh, computing units to uh, process all the things required for training a neural net. And even the, the ones that are the, the more expensive consumer grade uh, video car, uh, cards are able to solve a lot of deep learning uh, problems. Yeah, the only question is how much time do you want to spend on the training part? So the better the computer is, typically the, the faster the training goes. But for for your day-to-day uh, -day debugging, uh, a local machine is typically sufficient to solve those things. And so in that case, you don't need a supercomputer. But if you if you're looking at like what Google is doing with uh, recognition of uh, within photos, then you're not looking at uh, data sets of hundreds. Then you're looking at data sets of billions of pictures, and to to train those then you do need a lot of computing. And then that's where a, a supercomputer can come in handy. But in a lot of use cases, you're not working or you don't have the luxury to work with so much data. I, I would add that the biggest challenge right now is, is chip shortage, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, uh, which is quite challenging. Luckily, um, Accents has uh, dealt with it quite smartly. Uh, um, so we are able to produce, but uh, yeah, with chip shortage uh, and shortage of also uh, the hardware um, because they've been used in multiple applications right now. Uh, that's one of the biggest challenges right now. Okay, that's um, super interesting. Um, again, uh, just these last few questions just for the both of you. Um, what are some of the exciting things on the horizon in your fields of expertise? Interesting part is that, that as we move moving towards 6G, also have applications they will not just be used for communication, but they will also be used for sensing. So you could sense, for example, how many people are there in a particular environment, or maybe what are they doing, how they're, if you, I mean, the, the bandwidths or the frequencies are so high that you could perhaps also uh, use them as a radar uh, and get expressions from different people. So you can also use them in, in health and uh, uh, rehabilitation applications. Um, other than that, there is a, a plethora of, of, of sensor technology, plethora of uh, variable devices that are out there and people are using them. Um, 
And the, the question is, how can we combine all of them and create new interesting applications? I think this is the one of the very interesting fields that is emerging right now. There's a lot of competition in the market, a lot of people working on it, uh, but I think we can do quite well as well as, uh, as Accenture or Movella because we have expertise in a particular technologies that uh, other are a bit lacking in that part. So I really look forward to the, to the future in, in that essence. And Frank? Yeah. And for, for getting the most out of a small sensor set, we see more and more trend to, to combine information sources again. So to try to use information from IMUs, but also from like a camera, to still uh, like get, for example, the camera gives you pretty decent overall uh, idea of what someone's movement is. But if you want to get really into the detail of what differences are in joint angles, then you really need a sensor. But combining the two uh, can bring the best of both worlds. So basically doing sensor fusion, but then using some kind of uh, machine learning method to uh, to achieve that goal. And we see uh, especially a group in, in Germany, Tübingen, uh, from Michael Black, that's working on in this direction to, to bring the best of both worlds together and get away with using a, a small sensor set. Excellent. Well, that, uh, that wraps up my questions for today, guys. Um, just want to really thank you both for taking your time um, to come and have a chat. Um, very insightful information. I'm, I'm hoping our uh, listeners get as much out of it as I have. I think you've um, really uh, discussed some very cool things and it's, it's very uh, it's exciting to sort of see where, where this field is going and, and the things that are going to come, come out of this in, in the years to come. So very exciting stuff and, and thank you very much for, for sharing all those insights. Um, I'd like to take the opportunity to wish you both to a good day and uh, we'll, we'll see you shortly. And to our listeners, thank you very much for, for listening and watching today and we'll, we'll see you in the next episode.